You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 609 for February 1st, 2023. On this episode, Doug Womble. The show is going twice a month for a while. I've got enough interviews to make that happen, and it seems easy enough for me to produce them twice a month, so there'll be another one in two weeks. But it'll always be at least once a month. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show in which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. You can hear the bonus episode by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com join. You'll also get early access to every episode of the Jazz Session, a thank you from me on an episode, and occasional behind-the-scenes info or other bonus material. For example, right around the time that this episode goes out, the members will also be getting a sneak peek of who's coming up in the next couple of months. Please share this podcast on your social media if you like what you heard. It's the best way for me to get the word out, and I really do appreciate it. Doug Womble's new album is called Blues in the Present Tense. Here's the opening track. I remember a place I know I remember a place of soul Doug Womble, welcome to the Jazz Session. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure. I have been listening to your music for a very long time, and uh, it's a real thrill to have you on the show. We are talking about your latest record, which is called Blues in the Present Tense. And I'd like to start by asking how this album began, because I was wondering whether you, you know, you can imagine in some projects people are just writing songs and then there's enough of them and they think, okay, I'll put a record together. This feels maybe like a record that you were writing with a record in mind, but I'm curious how it worked. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, over, over the past, you know, 10 years or so, I've not really, my, my career as a musician has taken me sort of different places than where I started, you know? So just like being in the, um, in the cycle of, you know, writing music and playing music, you know, when I was really focused on just playing jazz all the time, it was kind of different. And I think that I, the, the way that I used to write music was kind of as a means to an end. I was always trying to write music um, 
that would improve the the working band that I had so that when we would go on tour, we would play material that would make us better as a unit. But, you know, that that part of my musical life is kind of uh, hasn't really been uh, the main thing that I do. And so when when I stopped sort of being like a full time touring jazz artist, I sort of got more into songwriting and. I've always loved writing music and writing songs, but I think the purpose of it changed a little bit. And for this record in particular, those kind of, those two things kind of came, came together. Like I really wanted to do a project uh, where I got back to playing some more creative improvisational music, but I also was writing a lot of material back in, you know, for the past three or four years, just writing various things that I guess it kind of started in two different ways. I, I've always wanted to do something with bassist Eric Rivas. We've been talking about doing something for years. And around the beginning of the uh, Trump presidency, Kurt Elling reached out to me. He was about to do a record and he wanted, he said, can you write me a protest song? And I said, okay. So I wrote, I wrote something and he wound up not using it for his project, but I kind of kept it, uh, kept it around. And I started thinking about how I felt about the state of affairs in the world. And I started writing, getting little pieces of things here and there when, when, a you know, the, the, the latest daily outrage would happen and I would sort of get a, a little idea about it. And so I kind of compiled all these things and, and came up with, what I thought would be a, a good collection of, of material. Most of it is new. I took one, one, one tune on the record is from my first album from like 20 years ago, but you know, I just, I said, yeah, this, this feels like the time, a good time to make a, make an album. And, you know, my, all my music has, has had a, a hint of social awareness, political awareness, if you will. And, um, so yeah, we set out to, I was going to go in the studio in March of 2020 and then things happened. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, then I, I, I began to question after the 2020 election, I was like, oh man, maybe is this music still relevant? I kind of, I kind of hoped for, it's, it felt like a second, like that period was over and that maybe the music wouldn't be relevant, which is a great thing, but it turns out I was wrong. So I just decided to go ahead and, and get it done. And, and, um, it was, it, it, the plan for it was different. I had a, some different personnel in mind, but the, just the, the way things all worked out, you know, it, it was really about me and I really wanted to record with Revis. I really wanted to record with Tane. Yeah. It, it, as it, as it happened, our, our illustrious tenor saxophonist happened to be in the, in town that day. So it all worked out. <laughs> And I'll be the one to say that that's uh, Branford Marsalis on saxophone, as you mentioned, Jeff Tain Watts on drums and Eric Rivas on bass. Uh, and there's an interview with Jeff in the archives. If folks want to go seek that out, you can do that at thejazzsession.com. Don't you tell me about your God. Is he listening? When you speak your fraud, don't you linger. Round this earthly shell, point that finger that you say. 
Um, one thing that we hear a lot of these days, and this, as you have hinted at, and as is immediately clear when someone listens to the record, this has some very overt and explicit social and political content. And we see a lot of the kind of like just play your guitar or just throw the football or whatever it is, you know, kind of mentality out there, like as if artists are, are not also part of the conversation about what's happening in our world. And I'm I'm just curious if you, you've either run up against that or if you have any any thoughts about it. I, I have a, a bit in in earlier days, you know, I. You know, I, th- I think that those statements tend to get wielded around the more famous you are. So, given, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I'm I'm even jazz famous at this point. So it's it's fine. I, I think, I mean, I think people have always had an expectation of, you know, jazz itself is political. Like, it's um, the the civil rights movement and Jim Crow and. Um, slavery and all these things are kind of woven into the history of of jazz so i think it's all it's always just been built in and of course the given the creators of the music it created a dividing line back in the day there were people who thought max roach was like you know they they call him you know the being oh he's angry it's like oh so you if if you're if, if you comment on injustice that makes you angry it's an it's an interesting thing that we do yeah. Also, mm-hmm. as if looking at the world around us and being angry is not a completely rational attitude to have. There, there's nothing right, wrong but with it's, anger. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it at all. But it's like, but we have this sort of dismissive way that we talk about it now. It's yeah. interesting. I mean, you know, people like to use, like they'll say something that they disapprove of and then they'll say, oh, instead of saying, I don't like that, they'll say, oh, it's so sad. It's so sad. It's just really sad. But what they're saying when they say it's sad is that they think that you don't have a right to express yourself. And particularly when people of color do it, it's, it's, it, it, it always takes on a different connotation. So for me, I wrote a couple of tunes back in the day when I was on, uh, when I was making my own jazz records and stuff, I made, I made like, I wrote an anti-war song and I, I, I and I was mad about the political climate of the early 2000s. It seems like, you know, Valhalla compared to what we're dealing with right now. But, you know, I long for the quaint, oh, Dick Cheney. Oh, it was so fun to be mad at him, you know, and he seems like a reasonable human being. Like the Overton window has been moved so greatly, you know. Yeah, it's a bay window these days. That's for sure. It's a bay window for sure. So, yeah. So I think that, you know, I've I I, I see it happen a lot more with um uh, with my wife, you know, whenever she she's very political as well, and she's got a huge, way bigger f- fan base than I do. So if people say it all the time. They're they still say that to her, and it's always white men above a certain age that say it. You know, that's the that's just how it is. But I think that as I say to people, when it comes to issues of you know social justice, racial justice, gender equality, all these kind of things. I feel that I have a particular responsibility because 
as a cis white male in this world, the things that are said when only cis white males are around each other are horrifying. And, and I think that's, those are the moments where people like me, that's where the work has to happen is you have to speak to people who are most likely to hear your, your message. You know, it's, it's, um, it's very difficult for certain white people to hear about injustice from a black man or to hear about gender equality from a trans woman. It's like, because there's all this fear built into it. It's, it's kind of my job to, to, to speak to those people as well so that they can to, to kind of do a back channel to, to them to say, Hey, it's not cool that we're always like this. And to try to give them a, an opportunity to say, oh, here's another cisgender white male who doesn't feel about the world as I do. And maybe they'll listen. They probably won't. I'm not, I'm not as Pollyanna-ish about that as I used to be. But I still have to try. I still have to try. And, and, and so that's kind of where this grew out of. You know, I was just talking about things from my perspective as I see it from where I come from. And... And to, and to say that, you know, I, I also want people to, to understand that there's a lot of us out here who feel the way that we feel about things who also look like maybe people who stormed the Capitol. So we have to we have to speak up for for what's right. You know, I believe that anyway. I ain't got no Yeah, here, here. Uh, and anyone who's listened to five minutes of this show over the last 15 years will know that it's going to take an enormous act of will for me to wrench myself back to talking about music because I'd like to just make the rest of this conversation talking about what we've been talking about. But I do want to make sure that we also talk about um, the music uh, on this record. And yeah, uh, the I just I guess I want to start with uh, the rhythm section. I mean, it's a quartet, so almost everything is the rhythm section. But you and Eric and Tane just sound so incredible together. You mentioned uh, having wanted to work uh, with Eric Rebus, uh, and I'm curious uh, why you wanted to. That might sound like a dumb question. I don't mean why would anyone want to, but why did you particularly no. want to? And uh, and also just how it felt uh, during the sessions. Yeah, you know, I think when you when you come to New York as a young person, you're always sort of in a process of evaluating like everyone you hear you're like oh i want to play with that person oh i, I don't want anything to do with that person you like you you sort of make this list of just because we all connect to people on a different level and when i first met revis i was just 
I was knocked out by, I mean, acoustic bass players have always been a big deal to me because I, I love how people who get a big sound out of their instrument acoustically. And I was just always, I was always impressed by the power that, that he had on the bandstand. And I met him around the time that he joined Branford's band in the late nineties. And, you know, I was just impressed by like how his, he was just so willing to do the work that it took. That's a, that's the hardest band in the world to be in. Like, particularly in the days when it was Branford and Tane create so much intensity on a bandstand. And I got to sort of witness sort of early, I see some gigs of, you know, Revis when he had first joined the band, I got to see one of Joey Calderazzo's first gigs with the band. So I just, I heard, I heard Revis's sound, I think above everything and just his intensity. And I was like, man, I really like the way he plays. I'd love to play with him. And then I did a, a, a few years later when I was on the road with uh, my, my band was opening up for Branford, you know, 20 years ago, Branford had a label that I was on. And so his label was helpful to me and his management was helpful to me to get my start. And so you're on the road and you, you know, you wind up doing the things that you do on the, when you're on the road, you have, you know, breakfast at the hotel and lobby calls and all this kind of stuff. So Revis and I just started finding that we had all this, you know, music in common that we really liked. We both love Ornette and Dewey Redmond, but we also love, you know, Chris Whitley and Robert Johnson and um, Jeff Buckley and stuff. So I just kind of always wanted to, to, to have a project where it was really, you know, an opportunity to, to play with him. And, you know, the scheduling to get all this together, Revis lives in LA. Um, Tane's obviously very, very busy. And I, I had, um, you know, I'd initially had, had planned on doing this record with Revis and JD Allen. JD is one of my favorite tenor players on the scene. And um, we had been sort of talking about doing something for years as well. So that was sort of the plan was to, you know, I was able to, you know, locking Tane down is tough because he's just so busy all the time. But I was able to get a date on the books with him and Revis. And I was like, OK, well, this is great. Unfortunately, J.D. was unable to attend. And at the last minute, it happened that Branford was in town. So it worked out. It worked out great. So, yeah, it was being in the room with them was pretty crazy. I mean, I had I had recorded with both of them previously on one of Branford's things years back and played with them here and there. But I wanted to get in the room with with them in a in this context where it was like you know just the music was very the music was very simple which allowed for complexity you know it's like simple forms and I just wanted an opportunity to get in there and just create I wrote some music that didn't require a lot of rehearsal it was just to the point and you know I've been listening to Tane for you know, since the eighties. So it's like his, his sound, same with Branford and I've been listening to Revis for 25 years. So it's like, you just, these people's sounds are in my head and I know how they play, but they do this all the time. They're on the road playing creative jazz music, like all the time. I'm not anymore. So that was a little, it was a little bit intimidating because I had to kind of make sure that I was going to step up to the plate because 
jazz put playing like intense creative music is like a muscle and we all wish we could just go to the gym once and get our biceps ripped and then never do it again but you have to keep doing it over <laughs> and over again you know and and that's just not what my life is anymore um so it it just it required some different brain muscles i think for me and a lot of practicing and stuff but i just wanted to you know take an opportunity to make a record like this again it's like well if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it right i, I want to play with i want to be the youngest person in the room you know i don't get a chance to do that. i just turned 50 so it's like those those chances you don't get them as much anymore you know I'm, I'm almost always the oldest person in the room now when i play music so and i love that too but there's something about playing with people who are older than you and more experienced that it brings out something that is very unique and I, I love that about being in the room with with all them see the steeple touch the clouds now all the people with their eyes all aglow let's take a quick break from the interview to remind you about becoming a member when you become a member of the show, you get early access to every episode, you get a thank you on an episode, you get some behind the scenes information, and you also get the bonus show that goes along with each main episode, which is called This I Dig of You, on which the artist from the main episode talks about something non-musical that they're enjoying. We've had ultimate frisbee and surfing and the beach and cooking and travel and all kinds of topics come up in that bonus show. And it's really fun. So check it out by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. I like to thank three members of my Patreon community on each show. This time, a tip of the cap to Jason Linnell, Christian Aspelin, and Colleen Kennedy. You're the bestest. Now back to the show. Touch those clouds now. All the people with their eyes, all the glow. I'm glad to have heard that backstory, but there is literally zero in indication in this record at all that you were not absolutely on par with the people you're playing with. I mean, you just, you sound incredible throughout. And uh, one of the things I, uh, you're welcome. One of the things I really, I really love is, is your sound. Uh, it's so, I don't know what, every, each time I've listened to this record, I've just thought like, man, I feel like I am like in Doug's guitar, like in, in a good way. <laughs> like, it's just, it's so, it's so present. It's so like kind of clean and centered and, and especially given sometimes like the maelstrom of what's going on around it's it's almost like this sonic anchor in the music even when you're so you know when the thing you're doing is soloing and you're obviously creating in the moment as well uh it's 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 just wonderful I've, i mean i've always loved your sound but i i just really i think it really rises to the fore in a beautiful way on this record so i, I that's not a question i'm just that's just a compliment i guess well I, I really love i it. appreciate that you know the sound is something that like that that instrument was made for me a few years ago by my friend matt his name is matt ike in saginaw michigan and i gotta shout him out he he found me on instagram a few years ago and he sent me this beautiful metal bodied resonator guitar which i've always loved and uh 
yeah, that that instrument is really the sound that I've had in my head for a long time. And I finally was able to someone out there who didn't even know me made made the sound in my head. And I love that thing. Yeah, it's great. I, I like the. You know, I was talking to Branford a little bit about this, too. It's also the thing about playing a, a primarily acoustic instrument is that it gives you a broader color palette just on its own. And that's and that's what I like about the. I, I like rough edges to music and and um, a lot of times when you when you have a lot of and in, in, in other circuit in other musical circumstances I use effects and all that I'm not against it or anything at all it's just that I like in this musical context I like to just have you know I had uh, uh, I put a microphone on the guitar as well as an amplifier and I like I want the sound of the air and I want the sound of I want it to be like a grounding force and I, and I want everything that I do interactionally, I want it to be coming from my hands. I don't want to be trying to like step on a pedal to, to make something else. I want in that moment, I want to be thinking only about creation of music in, in, in the moment. And that's that instrument just gives me a, it gives me a unique ability to do that. It's a hard instrument to play. It's believe me, it is like, it's very unforgiving and it's the strings are high and heavy and, but I like that feeling of struggle when I play this kind of music. I want to feel like I have something to overcome. I don't I don't want to just play the easiest guitar in the world that lets me play as fast as possible. I want to work a little bit. And 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 there was there was layers of work to be done when you when you got tamed behind the kits. So I love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to make sure we mention uh, Charlie Drayton, who is the producer on this record. And and, yes. you know, Charlie brings with him. I mean. As a player, you know, he's played with everybody from the Divinals for many years, you know, to Dylan and a million other people we could list. And then his family, I mean, within a couple generations of Charlie, like he's got family members who, you know, produced Billy Holiday records and John Coltrane records. And so, I mean, this is a guy who brings this kind of multifaceted look at the music. And I'm, I'm just curious about uh, what it was like working with him, what his role was in this, because producer, you know, that can wear a lot of hats in the music world. You know, Charlie's just someone I've known for a while, and we got to, I used to play gigs with him in New York with this great uh, blues man, Bill Sims, and, you know, we've just kind of had this ongoing friendship for, for, for many years, and I mean, I saw Charlie play here, I'm, I'm actually in Memphis this weekend with visiting my family, I... I saw Charlie play here in like probably 88 when he was touring with Keith Richards. The rhythm section was Steve Jordan and Charlie Drayton switching <laughs> off on bass guitar all night. So they just, they just switch back and forth. I was like, who does that? Who plays wow. bass and drums? Like it was mind blowing. And then over the years, I kind of got to know who he was a little more and, you know, always, always looked up to him and so, yes, we've just kind of become friends. And I, I said, you know, I would I would love it if. <laughs> well, Charlie's great at two things. He's he's great at many things, but he's two of the things he's great at are producing records, getting sounds. But he's also good at like. He was kind of like he was kind of like my uh, my boxing manager, like he was like I just I, I just kind of wanted someone there that I knew was kind of have my back. And 
So he he's someone that knows how to get good sounds. He's an incredible producer. I mean, one of my favorite records is like, I think 10 years ago, he, he produced this Fiona Apple record. It's just sonically one of the greatest things I've ever heard. And um, I saw, I actually came through Memphis this summer when he was here with Dylan, took my mom to see Dylan, which was great. So I just, I kind of just wanted him there as just an extra set of years. Cause I knew that we weren't going to have a lot of time. We're talking about old school jazz record, man. We got there, you know, at 11, we started playing at noon. We played for a couple of hours. We ordered some falafel. Then we finished up because, because we had a kind of a, a hard out of like 5 PM. Okay. Where everyone had to leave. So the whole record was done in four hours and we did not, we never, except to eat, we never left the booth. We didn't go in and listen back. Like we were just going through it. We just played the whole thing down. We, we, we recorded the album in sequence. We just did, we just played. And I just, I knew that having Charlie behind the booth, also the, the studio owner and engineer Andy Taub is someone I've known for many years. He has a place called Brooklyn Recording. So I knew between Andy and Charlie that everything was, I just, I, I, I just, my mind was at ease because I didn't have to think about anything other than playing and singing. So I knew that having Charlie there was going to be, it was just going to make me feel extra comfortable. And, and it did because like, I mean, he's someone that, you know, he's known Tane and Branford for forever. And he was just there to make sure that the sounds were good, which I loved I love the way the sounds came out. That was great. And then in, in, in between takes, he would kind of come in and he'd be like, just giving me ideas. And he's just got limitless ideas, but he also knows when to not share them. Like he's, he's so confident and egoless in his own way that like, he just, he's just, he's all about making whatever music he plays sound great. I mean, it's like who else has played with, you know, Herbie, Fiona Apple and Bob Dylan and Paul Simon. I mean, this dude just, he's got so much perspective to offer. And, and that's what he did. He would, he would, he would come in and he'd be like, let's try this. What would you think about, you know, bumping up the tempo on this? And that's okay. Let's try it. You know? So yeah, he was, he was invaluable. He just, he put me at ease. He just, he made me feel very, very secure in, just focusing on myself and and he was going to take care of all the other stuff and he he did he was great to have Neat the stillness of the moonlight waiting for I am trying to
this uh, this record, at least to my ear, it kind of it falls in this beautiful kind of liminal space, you know, kind of between genres, which I, I feel like that applies to a lot of what you do, that it it, it takes yeah. from a lot of places. I, I don't know if that resonates with you at all, if you have any thoughts about, yeah. about that idea. I've always been interested in, in a lot of music. I, I've, I fell in love jazz music as a young person. And that will kind of always be my first love. But I mean, I also grew up in, in Memphis around all this, all this beautiful music that's around here. Everything from Stax and Al Green to, you know, Delta blues and country music and church music and all this kind of stuff. So that's always been, I've always loved lots of music, but I think I've also, you know, one of the things that I, that I see is that all, all this music that I love is sort of part of jazz. And it's like, I never, I think for, from a young age, I was always able to kind of understand that um, all the great jazz musicians that I love, they, they grew up listening to a lot of the same stuff. You know, if it's like, if you were, if you're John Coltrane born in the, you know, early part of the 20th century, like what were you listening to that made you who you are? Same with Ornette Coleman or Miles Davis or Monk or Charlie Parker. It's like, I, I was always interested in what might've they heard? What, what, what might've they listened to that shaped them? You know? And I love these stories about, you know, there's a great story about bird going to a diner and putting in a, he, he borrowed a nickel so he could play a Hank Williams song. And someone was like, man, why are you playing that? He's like, man, the stories are so great, man. You know, and, and Bird was a storyteller. So I never like to see the difference in it that much. It's like, I, I, of course, music is different. It's like Bartok is not the same as, uh, you know, Reverend Gary Davis, but it's, there's still things that we can find in common with them, even if we acknowledge their differences. And I guess that's a lesson to America today is like we have to find something in common even if, if we if, if we're very different with one another and I so I, I've always felt like you know traditional gospel music and, and Appalachian folk and Delta blues those are all parts of the stew that made jazz music to begin with you know so I, I've found it interesting over the past 20 years that a lot of those things have been kind of scalpeled out of jazz it's like we've 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 replaced traditional gospel music with gospel chops and we've we've taken delta blues and 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 uh and the folk tradition largely the folk tradition has been replaced by the sort of hip-hop tradition and, and how that that how that applies to the younger generation who grew up with hip-hop and how they play jazz music. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm not here to make a value judgment about it one way or the other. I think that everything can, you know, everyone should do what they feels right. But I think always exploring where the music comes from is a, I just don't see how that's ever a, a bad idea because it, it gives you, it gives you perspective on things. It's like when I, when I, when I first, like every young jazz musician, I loved, Miles Davis, you know, 50s quintet, you know, or, or John Coltrane. But when I was when I started listening to earlier jazz and really getting into what was happening in the 20s and 30s, it gave me such a deeper meaning of records like Crescent or, you know, 
kind of blue or whatever. I mean, those because that music was part of how those musicians grew up. And there's a great story Branford tells about shedding. A, he was shedding on a, a, a Coltrane solo back when he was in Blakey's band. And Blakey was like, man, you ain't never going to learn how to play like train by shedding on train. You got to learn Bechet and Johnny Hodges first. And then you might get an, you might get more perspective on what train really was. And of course, Branford was like 19 at the time and didn't, didn't pay him much mind, but then he eventually did. So when I think about blues or traditional gospel music, Appalachian folk, all that, all that kind of stuff was kind of in the ether. And it was, it was, it was already, it had already been around a while when jazz was being formed. So all that stuff is in there. So I don't even see it sometimes as being a separate thing. You know, I, I hear it all as part of the, part of the stew, you know? Finally, I wanted to ask, and kind of following on from what you were just talking about, um, I wanted to ask about the song Blues to the Unfound, and in particular because uh, you said it was inspired by by two people, one of whom is Duke Ellington, but the other is Kenny Kirkland. And uh, you and I are the same age, and uh, when I was a teenager in the 80s, uh, my road, I had listened to big band music because of my grandfather, but my road into small group jazz was the Blue Turtles band that Sting had, which had Kenny and Bradford in it. And that was some of the first like kind of long form improv. And I saw that band live and there were lots of like, you know, kind of there were both long solos and as Branford famously said, you know, very short solos where you had to get to the point fast. But Kenny was was huge for me. And I started then listening to his music and I I found a lot of other people uh, because of that. And so I'm just I'd love to hear just your own impressions and and how he came to inspire this tune. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, same here, you know, when 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 that. Uh, Bring On The Night documentary came out. I thought, I love the record. But then I was like, who are these people? And and Branford in particular, when he was was being interviewed, Daryl Jones, like they were just the coolest people. I was like, man. (laughs) And so, you know, I mean, I must've been in like the, I mean, I was a teenager when that that came out. And I remember around that time, I, I got... Branford's record called um, Royal Garden Blues. Yeah. And it's great. Like they do, they do one of Ellis's tunes. Ellis plays them on one track. Kenny's on the rest of it. But I mean, I got that record and I was like, well, this is horrible. Like, what is this? Like, I hated it. (laughs) I hated it. I was just like, what is this? This is noisy. But there was one tune on there that I really liked and it was called it was a ballad called Dienda, 
that Kenny wrote. And um, I was like, wow, that's really beautiful. And, and over the years, I kind of, you know, again, if you, if you remember the late eighties, because of like, at the late eighties, early nineties, because of Sting and Jay Leno, you know, Branford was like this, he was kind of in the pop culture awareness. Like he would, Oh, he's on an episode of the Fresh Prince this week. You know, it's like he was was kind of that. So he had this cool factor. And then the Mo Better Blues movie came out. And, you know, so all all that stuff was happening around around the same time. You know, the thing about Kenny for me is that like his, when I I think the first thing I really was struck by was like that that opening scene of Bring on the Night where he plays just that blistering solo on, on, on the tune Bring on the Night. Yes. And then I started checking out other stuff. And then when, when, when I got into jazz, I think it was, you know, starting to, it was, it was around the time that he did his, his uh, debut album for GRP, which I thought, I thought was a weird record too. At the time it was like, wow, it's all these weird, like early 90s synth sounds and stuff like that. But what, what blew me away about Kenny was that he just had, um, he kind of he encapsulates he encapsulates everything we were just talking about like he knows all the music he just he had everything under his fingers he had all the knowledge he knew he knew so much about classical music he had you know all the herbie and chick stuff but he also had like just the stankiest blues and early gospel and he could play stride and all this you know he just he just had he was such a complete musician and then as a composer I mean, just learning some of his music over the years, like what a, he's just a brilliant organizer of harmony and wrote the most beautiful melodies. And yeah, so that, that tune, Lose the Unfound was like, you know, I wanted one moment like that on the record of playing like a, you know, a ballad that was not in time, like a rubato ballad. Brantford's recorded several of those. Um, It's kind of coming out of the Keith Jarrett thing from the 60s and yeah i was just i was thinking about kenny when when we were playing that i was just you know he's someone that i never really got i I had one phone conversation with him when i moved to town moved to new york in the late 90s but i was never able to really connect with him and he was he was he was someone whose music his music remains very very important to me and uh i i i go back to it all the time to learn lessons (laughs) He was something, man. My guest is Doug Womble. The album is called Blues in the Present Tense. Doug, it's been such a joy to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time to do it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to my guest, Doug Womble. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. You can message me for more info about Sarah. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. Hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram and TikTok at The Jazz Session. Take a second right now, if you would, to rate and review the Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or in the app that you use to listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcasts, poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. I realized 
very recently that uh, since taking the show back over from Nikki Shrira, I had actually not put the newsletter link back up on the Jazz Session website. So I've been telling you to do that now ever since I came back and it's been impossible. But now you can go to the jazzsession.com and there is in fact a link that says newsletter and you can subscribe. Sorry about that if you've tried to do it in the past. If you value what you just heard, not the part about me being dumb, but the rest of it, become a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. And then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.